1 Corinthians 7. And we're reading from verses 25 through to the rest of the chapter. So, verse 25. Now, about virgins, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who, by the Lord's mercy, is trustworthy. Because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. What I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they had none. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those of us who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world, in its present form, is passing away. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin, is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks he is acting improperly toward the virgin he is engaged to, if she's getting along in years and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He is not sinning. They should get married. But the man who has settled the matter in his own mind, who is under no compulsion and has control over his own will, and who has made up his mind not to marry the virgin, this man also does the right thing. So then he who marries the virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does even better. A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. In my judgment, she is happier if she stays as she is. And I think that I too have the spirit of God. And that's God's word. Thank you, Rob and Sarah. You see what I mean? A woman with a broken heart. You, you know, it's all true. Don't give your heart away too soon. But thank you so much. Um, that is a helpful reminder of last week. 
Now, just to remind you all, what we're looking at today really builds on what we've been looking at over the last five or so weeks. So it builds on our identity, our gender, understanding marriage properly, understanding sex properly, and also understanding dating properly. And so tonight we'll be looking at singleness. But let's again ask God for his help. Let's, let's join in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that as we think about singleness, that you remind us to place our treasure where treasure must be placed. Help us to see ourselves as you see us. And so we pray, Lord, for much clarity on this topic. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so we will be looking at the topic of singleness. Now, this is a topic that affects all of us, all of us, whether we are single or not, because this is the experience of all of us at some stage in our life. You see, we are all born single. We're not born married. We are all born single. Some will get married at some time in the life, and some will die as married people. But then the surviving spouse, that might be you or your spouse, the widow or widower, will again become single. And so it might mean the rest of that person's life as a single person. You see, singleness affects all of us, and we need to understand it properly. And so, for example, my my grandmother, who is 80 years old at the moment, she's been a widow for 30 years already. My grandfather died about 30 years ago. That's a lifetime. You see, so singleness affects all of us. We need to understand it. There's a period of singleness before marriage, if we get married. And then there's a period of singleness after marriage. And, of course, the reality is that some of you will remain single for your entire life. And so we want to be thinking rightly about singleness, especially because of the pressure and the perception we get about singleness from society, from even within the church, and even from amongst Christians. You see, from the perspective of society, because single Christians are required to remain chaste for life, that means that you will have a sexless existence. Now, from the perception of the world, that just does not make sense. But we can. Or from the pressure that comes from within the church or even from families. Because Christians, we value marriage so highly, it has often wrongly left singles feeling second class. And that is not right. So we want to be thinking rightly about that as well. And because the pressure can often be so great from families, it diminishes the honor of singleness. And of course, there is pressure that comes from within ourselves as well. You know, some hearing when friends start to date, get engaged, get married, become bridesmaids for the 27th time, they probably should make a movie on that, or hearing friends having kids. For some, that might mean not happiness, but sadness and despair and loneliness. Some think of singleness as, I'm lonely until I get married. I will never be satisfied until I get married. I'm still waiting for that Mr. Darcy. Not that I know anything at all about Pride and Prejudice, but apparently there's a guy, Mr. Darcy, to swing in like Tarzan wearing uh, armor, shining armor, to scoop me up in his arms and to take me away in the distant sunset. So romantic. And then I will feel complete. You see that pressure that comes from ourselves. And so the perception and pressure that comes from society, from the church, and even from within, it, it makes singleness sound strange nonsensical 
and even sometimes to be viewed with suspicion. And of course, that is not only not helpful, if we think that way, it is in fact wrong. And that's why we need to think rightly about singleness tonight, so that it retains its rightful, honoured state that it is. And so what does the Bible teach about singleness? Well, as we begin, I want to acknowledge that there are real and genuine longings of singles that are in fact good, and they are good. Of course, it must also be acknowledged that there are challenges and frustrations and sadness and feelings of missed opportunities. But then we must also acknowledge the flip side. The flip side must not be forgotten as well. There are also challenges and frustrations and even great sadness and hurt amongst those who are married. The grass is not always greener. We need to remember that. Singles want to get married. married want, the married wants to become single again and become a bachelor. That's what Yvonne often says about me. You remember that trip last year when you went on that study tour, which was hard work. You just wanted to be a single again, didn't you? I said, no, I was working, I was studying. But anyway... As a pastor, I have seen, it's not just singles who struggle, it is the married as well. The grass is not always greener. And so what are the longings that not only singles desire, but all people really desire deep down? You see, we all desire intimacy, sexual expression, and children that is found in marriage. And they are good desires. God made us relational beings for relationship. God made us sexual beings for sexual expression. And God made us reproductive beings for children. And that is what we have to acknowledge, is to help us understand why there can be so much pain and hardship for those who are single. And so longing for marriage is a good thing. But if these are good longings, why doesn't God just give marriage to everyone, especially those who belong to him, and want to get married. Well, God has many reasons for this. But let me tell you all four reasons what it can't be. Why is it that not everyone is married? Well, firstly, it can't be because God does not love you. I mean, if God gave up, gave up his only son, who was beaten and butchered and bled and died for you, well, it can't be because God doesn't love you. I mean, God's... I've sacrificed my son for you. I love you that much. Now, now, to think that I don't love you enough to find a spouse for you, that, of course, can't be true. Second, it can't be because God is not powerful enough. I mean, if this is the God who created the universe by merely just speaking, planets and stars flung into the sky, mountains made to rise, rivers made to flow, lifeless creatures brought to life, I mean, God is powerful. But then if God, I've made the world without breaking a sweat, but to find a spouse for you, I mean, that's hard work. I mean, your standards are too high. Of course, that can't be true, right? Third, it, it can't be because God is out to rob you of joy and contentment, or God really doesn't have your best interests at heart. I mean, doesn't the Bible tell us in Romans that God works for the good of those who love him? In all things, God is working for our good. And so if that is what God is like, it can't be true that, that God has made a mistake here with your potential spouse, with your singleness. And fourth, 
It can't be because God does not understand the pain and the struggles of singleness. Of course God understands. He not only understands, he knows and he cares. And so if it's not for these reasons, then why are singles left with unfulfilled longings and desires? Well, firstly, it is because the longings of singleness is not ultimately fulfilled and satisfied in marriage. That's an important point to remember. Now, that might sound weird and strange. If I long for marriage, then how can I not find fulfillment in marriage? Well, it is because the longings of not just singles, but the longings of everyone is not fulfilled ultimately in marriage, but in what marriage points to. It's not fulfilled ultimately in marriage, but in what marriage points to. You see, marriage was never intended to be an end in itself. It was not designed to bear the weight of all our hopes and dreams and desires and longings. I mean, if Yvonne was to expect that of me in our marriage, then I would only disappoint her because I am a sinner. I cannot take that place in her heart, in her hopes, in her longings, which only Christ Jesus can fulfill. And that's because we were made not merely for each other. We were, in fact, made for God. We were all made for God. You see, longing for marriage can be good. But longing for marriage as my ultimate fulfillment and satisfaction, that then becomes an idol. And this is often what happens when we idolize marriage. When people think and say, I'm not satisfied until I'm married or I'm not complete until I'm married, that is to turn marriage into an idol. And what do we know about idols? Idols always disappoint. Uh, An author, a wonderful author, Greg Morse, he puts this wonderfully. He says, Marital love became a demon because I made her into a god. I found that so helpful. Marital love is good, but when it becomes a god, idolize when marriage is idolized it becomes demonic and it will fail it will disappoint or consider this example of andrea trevina in her excellent book the heart of singleness is worth reading she wrote this book as a single 42 year old woman she had a past where she had a potential uh, date with a non-christian which she eventually turned down And writing now of her experiences, this was what she said. She said, I used to daydream about being married to an amazingly gifted, well-known Bible teacher. Not a specific one, an imaginary one. In my daydream, people would frequently come up to me and say things like, Oh, wow, you are married to him? Isn't your husband amazing? He's so gifted and godly and humble and funny. In a daydream, he was also good-looking and everyone else noticed that too. But being Christians, they just thought it and didn't say it. So true, isn't it? And I would think, and I would think, yes, that's my husband. Now, what was wrong with her daydream? She was daydreaming this, she wanted this, she longed for this. Well, Andrea recognized it herself. It became a form of idolatry. And so she went on to say, My focus wasn't on the fact that my husband was being used by God and that God was being honoured and glorified through him. 
My focus was on the fact that I was being honoured and glorified for having such a great husband, for being the kind of woman who would be married to such a godly man. I was wanting a husband in whom to find my identity, my satisfaction and my value. I was still making a husband into an idol. Do you see how a good thing can turn into a bad thing? When it's seen as the ultimate thing, it in a sense becomes demonic. It's an idol. And so you see, the longings of singleness is ultimately fulfilled not in marriage, but in what marriage points to. So marriage was always meant to be, as we know, a shadow of the eternal reality. Marriage on earth will end. When we're in heaven, there will be no marriage because our marriage here is to point to a greater marriage, a marriage between Christ and his church. And so let me illustrate this. Longing for marriage can be a good thing. That can be a good thing. But the joys and intimacy of marriage was always meant to point to the ultimate reality of Christ and his church. It's always meant to look forward. It was not meant to look inward that marriage is an end in itself, was never meant to be that way. And so when you see good marriages, when we look around church and see families and see good marriages, it's actually meant to point us to how great that heavenly marriage will be, how much greater. When we see bad marriages, what's that meant to do is to help us see what the eternal marriage is not like. When it's good, it's going to be better. When it's bad, that heavenly marriage will not be like that. And so this eternal marriage, with all its intimacy and joy and contentment, will far exceed whatever is possible in our human marriages. It will be far greater. And often we've reflected on this. Yvonne and myself, God has granted us a, a wonderful marriage, and we are grateful and thankful to God for that. But we reflected on that, and, and, and we, we recognize, as good as this is, Heaven will be far better. Somehow our relationship with the Lord will be far deeper than what we have now. Even the intimacy of sex will be superseded by something that is far better when all Christians will be intimately, personally loved and cherished by the Lord Jesus himself for all eternity. That's what we learn in Ephesians chapter 5. You see, God, in fact, gave humans marriage really to teach us something about his love for humanity. It's always meant to point beyond us. And so what this means then is that though many won't get married, many will not get married, all Christians will eventually experience the ultimate fulfillment of marriage in heaven. And so if you understand this, you might not experience marriage now on earth, but we will all experience that in heaven. And so if you understand that eternal perspective, being single, even if it's for life, that might be 70 years, 90 years, how many years God will grant you. But being in complete, fulfilled, satisfied satisfaction will be for all eternity. How do you compare 90 years to eternity? We will all get that. And so what this means is that no single Christian will be single forever. No single Christian will be single forever. That's important to remember. 
the longings of singleness are found ultimately not in marriage, but in what marriage points to. Does that make sense? All good. Now, that might all sound good and right, but I still suspect for some, if you are single, the feeling remains. I still want to get married. Yes, I understand that. I know it will be great in heaven, but I still want to get married now. Now, it is worth recognizing that for all Christians, we all have different longings and desires. And marriage is really just one of them. It's not necessarily the biggest, nor is it necessarily the most important. You see, there are desires of all Christians for better health, for peace, for joy, for happiness. But the reality is that we will all live with some form of unfulfilled desires. Some will have to suffer incurable diseases, chronic illnesses, cancers. The desire is that that all goes away, that there will be healing. But it might never happen. But it will in the resurrection. You see, we all have longings and desires, and many of them will remain unfulfilled until we get to heaven. You see, no one gets through life get, getting everything we want. And no single, and being single is really no exception to that rule. And it's also worth remembering our Lord Jesus Christ himself. Was he a fulfilled, satisfied man? Of course he was. But he was single, never married, never enjoyed sex as we understand it. Never. But he was fulfilled. But you see, in, in God's sovereign kindness and goodness god does provide some form of fulfillment that is found outside of marriage the first is from the community of believers you see our desire for deep relationship and intimacy that is not sexual it's not just found in marriage but can be found amongst the body of believers amongst the family of god and that's why in church i love to use the term This is the family of God, for that is what we are, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so being single does not necessarily mean loneliness. It shouldn't mean loneliness because you have the church family in which you belong to. And being married does not always mean not lonely. There are feelings of loneliness for even those who are married. You see, God has given us to each other so that we might enjoy deep, meaningful relationships. Marriage is not the only place for that. We have to remember that. You see, as our our own family, we're very conscious of that. How we love all of God's people, single or married, the same. Never just to uh, draw a line between the couples and the singles and love them differently. We are to love all of God's people the same. And even the desire for children... Those for those who are single for life, that won't be possible. In fact, it's not even possible for some who are married. There are still joys of being aunties and uncles, or even fathers and mothers of spiritual children. Do you remember the Apostle Paul, how he spoke of Timothy as his son in the faith? I mean, imagine that joy. This might not be your biological son. But this was a son you brought to faith, gave life to spiritually, and raised up in the faith. Or John Stott. I shared this a few months ago. He was one of those. He lived 90 years as a single person, an influential Christian leader, 
and reflecting on, on his life of singleness, he said this. He said, Although I have no children of my own, I have hundreds of adopted nephews and nieces all over the world who call me Uncle John. I cherish these affectionate relationships. They greatly lessen, even if they do not altogether deaden occasional pangs of loneliness. He said, God has given us the community of believers so that no one married or single need to feel lonely or be lonely. But ultimately, fulfillment is found not in marriage, but in what marriage points to. And so even if you do not get marriage, you still get heaven where it will be all fulfilled. Now, hopefully that doesn't sound like a consolation for singles. But in the Bible, what we also find is that singleness is not something that is to be pitied, but it is something that is to be honoured. Singleness, you see, is a gift that is to be accepted, not a burden to be despised. Now, some people feel that singleness is this unwanted gift from God. God says it's a gift, but I don't want this gift. We want a refund on this gift. A bit like um, Yvonne, you probably don't know this, but she rarely buys clothes for me. She's got a different taste because when she buys clothes, it always gets returned or I just won't wear it. Is that what it's like with this gift from God, this good gift of singleness? Well, the Apostle Paul, a single man, said whatever circumstance you find yourself, whether you're single or married, that is God's good gift to you whether you're single or married. And so in 1 Corinthians 7, I wish that all men were as I am, that is, unmarried. But each man, not just some men, but each man has his own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. Now that is often misunderstood. Many people think and believe that only some people have the gift of singleness that it is somehow a mystical calling. And so then that leaves a category of people who are single, who don't have the gift of singleness, and are waiting desperately for the gift of marriage, which may or may not come. And so those with the gift of singleness then are those without any sexual desire or that somehow God has divinely removed all hormones from that guy or girl. They have no sexual desire, and that's why that person has that gift. And so the uncontrolled people are those who go nuts and crazy. They need to get married. Well, that's a wrong way of understanding this passage. What Paul is saying is that whatever state of life you are in, you're either in one of two. If you are married, then you have the gift of marriage. But if your spouse dies, then you've been given the gift of singleness, and you have to learn to be content in that. And if you are single, then you have the gift of singleness. You may later exchange that for the gift of marriage when the opportunity comes. But now the gift that you have, you might not want it, but the gift that you have, which is good, is that you are single. And so everyone has a gift. And that is the state of life that you are in. And this is a good gift that is to be accepted, not a burden that is to be despised. Let's think about that. God in his sovereign purposes, all loving, all powerful, all knowing, 
God in his sovereign purposes is always working for your good. We know that to be true. It's what we believe whether we feel it or not. God knows our hearts and he never makes a mistake. We know that is to be true. And so what is good for your godliness now and your Christ-likeness now is the gift that God has given to you now. I'll say that again. What is good for your godliness now and your Christ-likeness now is the gift that God has given to you now. You may get married later on and you'll serve God as a married person or you may never get married at all. But what's good for you now is in fact what you have now. That is the state that you're in. You see, God's divine power is always at work, as we saw in that first reading. And so we are not to be unproductive. Singleness is a gift to be accepted, not a burden to be despised. Second reason. It's also an opportunity that is given, not a curse from God that is inflicted. I mean, God is teaching us, and what the apostle makes clear is that there is, in fact, something that takes precedence over marriage. I live not to get married. I live for Christ. Paul makes that clear. And so what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, because of the present crisis, I think that it is good for you to remain as you are. Are you married? Do not seek a divorce. Are you unmarried? Do not look for a wife. But those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. You see, Paul wants all people to give undivided devotion to the kingdom of God. Because of the current, present crisis, there is this gospel urgency. I mean, don't you realize the apostle screaming out at us? Don't you realize that there are thousands around us who will miss out on heaven? Don't you realize there are so many people who have not heard of the Lord Jesus and you're so caught up just worrying about getting married? Get caught up with eternal things. And so singleness is not to be seen as a curse, but it is to be seen as an opportunity that is given, an opportunity to serve. And that's why in Paul's mind it is better in that sense because marriage will always mean Less time and divided interests. That's what Paul goes on to say. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. And so if you are single, you're actually in a privileged position. It is a wonderful place to be. You have the time, you have the flexibility, you have the freedom to be fully devoted to the things of God. And it's no coincidence, amongst the apostles of Jesus, who was most productive and fruitful? Well, it was the apostle Paul, the celibate apostle. He was able to travel wherever the gospel was needed, plant churches, did more to further the cause of the gospel through the Roman Empire than any of the other apostles. I mean, he wrote almost half the New Testament. And he goes on to say, but... uh, A married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. Now, this is not saying that he's not honouring God as he loves and serves his family and his wife, but what it is saying is that compared to the single, 
he has added responsibility, added complexity in his life, a family he must now be responsible for and to lead spiritually. And so what this means is that his responsibilities are just divided. Now, if you think about this, if all things being equal, the married person just does not have as much time and flexibility as the singles to do the things of God. I reflected on this this past week. I would wish and desire and long to disciple more people than I do. I long to mentor more people than I do, but I can't. I have a family to care for, which is no less important. But I have less time and less flexibility. Even after the evening service, often, you know, we hang out at supper, you guys chat, and who remains? It's often always the singles plus me because I'm the minister, I better stay back. All the other married, they're back home looking after their family and kids. And when you singles go out for dumplings and that, what do I do when you ask me? I have to call my wife. You don't have to do that. You see, there's added complexity. You confuse me now. Added complexity and less flexibility. And so if you are single, take advantage of it. It's a gift and it is an opportunity. You might not be single forever, but now that you are, give yourself fully to the kingdom of God. It's an opportunity that is given, not a curse that is inflicted. And finally, singleness is a gift and an opportunity, but for some, it might become a conscious choice, not just a backup plan. I mean, if I don't end up getting married, no one likes me, okay, I'll just do gospel ministry then. It's not a backup plan. (laughs) But a choice, a strategic choice for the kingdom of God. I mean, that's radical teaching. Radical teaching that comes really only from the new covenant. It is because of the present crisis and the gospel urgency. Jesus spoke highly of this. Remember, Jesus is the one who designed marriage. He knows it's good, but never got married himself. And he said this in Matthew. For some are eunuchs because they were born that way. Others were made that way by men. And others have renounced marriage, that is, more literally, made themselves eunuchs because of the kingdom of heaven. The one who can accept this should accept it. And so for the sake of the kingdom of God, for the sake of the salvation of souls, for the sake of God's honor, some will choose not to marry. The kingdom of God takes precedence over marriage. And there are many individuals who have chosen this consciously, given their life undividedly, devotion to God and his kingdom. Tremendous work they've done. For example, Betsy Stockton, first single female missionary to Hawaii. Amy Carmichael, missionary to India. Gladys Alwood, missionary to China. Dick Lucas, He transformed really a small church into a thriving evangelical reformed church in London. And even here in Melbourne, we have so many. Uh, There's one guy I contacted this week, Peter Adams. Some of you may have heard of him, former principal of Ridley College. I contacted him this last week because I know him to be a single man who's older in age. 
to ask him of his experience and what he would say to singles. And this was what he said. Don't feel inferior or resentful. Don't engage in self-pity or despise yourself. Do be a positive and generous member of a church, a contributor, not a consumer. He's, he's at least 70 now, single his whole life, and that's what he's thinking. And of course, even in our own congregation, there are many who remain unmarried after their husbands have passed away, and many serve the Lord and his people with undivided devotion. So singleness, how are we meant to understand this as Christians? It's, it's not a backup plan. It's not something to be pitied. It is a gift to be accepted, not a burden to be despised. It is an opportunity that is given, not a curse that is inflicted. And for some, it's a choice that is made, not something to be pitied. And so hopefully, there is now a bit more clarity, at least, for how we are to understand singleness. There are genuine longings that are good and true. But ultimate fulfillment is only in Christ. Ultimate fulfillment will be seen when we get to heaven. And so there is a purpose and a reason now for singleness. And so I'd like to end with a few words for both the married and the singles. Firstly, to the married of us. Firstly, and that is, do not idolize your marriage and be consumed by it. When your marriage becomes introverted, self-absorbed, inward-looking, I gaze into your eyes, you gaze into mine for life, I mean, that's sad and distorted. That might sound romantic, but that is weird. Gazing into each other's eyes for life, and that is unproductive. That marriage is selfish, a self-satisfying me thing, that we forget there are the people of God to be loved and cared and served and built up. I mean, if that is what marriage is like, and if that is what your marriage is like, then not in the words of Christ, not in the words of the apostle, but my words, get over yourself. Look outwards, not just inwards. And what that means then is that you use your marriage in the service of God and his people. You'll be a better family. You'll have a more healthy family because of us because you recognize the family of God, the brothers and sisters of Christ. And so it might mean being far more conscious. I know couples do this, but being far more conscious of not just doing double dates. As romantic as that might be, it's not, not, not saying don't do it, but be more conscious of it. We're always conscious about this in our family, who we invite over for meals. Not just couples, not just married people. We want to include the family of God, the single brothers and sisters in our family life. And it is wonderful. It is far more enriching. Not only do we get free babysitting from our single friends and brothers and sisters, but they become like aunties and uncles to our kids. And we value them as family. That's a richer life. And it might mean not just having family holidays or couple holidays, but seeing our single brothers and sisters as family too. I remember we, we did this quite consciously when we were at Bible college in our group, singles, married, families. We got together, we went away, we enjoyed each other's family because we are the family of God. It was wonderful. And your life will be far richer when you recognize and love the wider family of God. 
So marriage is not meant to be introverted. Secondly, for married, do not patronise. Do not patronise the singles. Joking about when you will get married. Aren't you old already? I'm sure there's a Mr Darcy out there somewhere for you. Don't worry, there are many fishes in the sea. What's wrong with you? Why aren't you dating? I mean, that might sound fun and funny. I remember I joked this way at Bible college to my single friend. I I, I thought I was just having a joke. But I was not being, not just unhelpful, it was in fact hurtful to him. And when he told me that, I knew this is no joke. I've repented. Do not patronize. Secondly, speaking of our spouse, our husband or wife, as our better half or other half. That can be an unhelpful way of speaking of our spouse. It only serves to make singles feel that they're only half a person until they get married. So watch how we speak about that. And thirdly, always looking out to matchmake. Organize the blind dates. Now, there might be a place for that. It might sound fun to organize, and it might all be well-intentioned. But it can undermine the honor and the gift of singleness. And so to those of you who are married, do not idolize marriage. Do not patronize the singles. Now for the singles. Firstly, and that is, do not waste away your singleness. In God's wisdom, he has chosen this gift for you now. This is God in all his wisdom and love and power. He's chosen this gift for you now so that you can make a difference in the world now, not despite your singleness, but through your singleness. And so what that means then is don't waste away someone else's singleness by going around and dating around. Don't become a serial dater. I almost said that wrong, and it's bad if I said that wrong. Don't become a serial dater flippantly moving around from date to date and wasting each other's life. Don't live a life also where you feel like you're lacking something. You are not lacking anything. And don't live a life like you're on hold for something better. All of life is on hold until you get married. That is not the way to live. Get your hands dirty now in the work of the kingdom. You see, your singleness might not last But even if it ends up being lifelong, don't waste it away. Remember, 90 years is nothing compared to eternity. And secondly, to the singles, learn contentment, not self-pity. Don't feel like you're the victim. You see, if you cannot find contentment as a single, then you won't find it in marriage anyway because it means that you're looking for it in the wrong place. See, the full contentment, satisfaction, fulfillment, the joy in life, is not found in a husband or wife. It is found in Christ alone. Just the other week, I had a chat with someone very close to me who had just broken up with his fiance. All blew up in the end. They were planning to get married, but it didn't happen. And I could see in his eyes there was pain, there was grief, there was sadness. But I encouraged him, don't, don't think about dating yet. Don't think about the next person yet. Learn to be content now as a single man. Get your foundations right now. Because if you try to find that in a relationship, you'll only be left disappointed again. Now, of course, having said this, 
This is not to deny that it is difficult and there can be struggles to be in being a single and can be frustrating. We need to acknowledge that. A single woman I asked about singleness, who's now a missionary overseas, she said, it's a grief that is often suffered in silence. And so if you do find it hard, what do you do? You bring it to the Lord in prayer. Pour out your heart to God and ask even for a spouse. We are allowed to do that with God. But in the end, pray the way Jesus prayed. Not my will, but your will be done. You know what's best for me. You know what's best for my godliness. You know what's best for my Christ-likeness. Let your will be done, not mine. Now, I, I, I know that Yvonne herself, as a little girl, not sure if her parents taught her this, but she prayed that she would find a godly husband. As a little girl, she prayed that. We sometimes pray this for our three kids, that if it's God's will, that God will grant them godly spouses. Now, Yvonne's prayer has been answered. We're not sure about our kids yet. Oh, a spouse, don't know about godly, but anyway, you get the point. But the desire is in our prayer that God's will be done. That may be marriage, that may not be. But what we must remember is that no Christian is meant to live this life alone. And so singles, don't waste your life waiting, keeping on hold, and do be content. In the end, God sees and knows every pain, the loss, the desires, the longings. But his grace is deep enough for every pain. He has given himself to us as our heavenly father, and he has given us his son, as the bridegroom, the one who will love us and cherish us for all eternity. And so in the end, how are we to think? Well, there are still souls to be saved, lives to be won, eternity to be gained. We've all got this greater, higher calling from God. And so like what the apostle said, but to paraphrase, to live is not to marry. To live is is not to have sex. To live is not even to have children. To live is certainly not to find that soulmate, but to live is Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters, my precious brothers and sisters in Christ, that whether married or single, we won't lose sight of not only the life you've called us to, to live for Christ, but also to the eternal marriage where we'll be loved and cherished and adored by your Son, our Bridegroom. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we had a number of questions tonight. Uh, it was very hard to try and filter them through, but we tried to make it as relevant as possible to tonight. Uh, and our first one is probably the one that we had the most questions on variations. So there's a couple of verses there from Genesis 1:28: "Be fruitful, increase in number." Genesis 2:18: "Not good for man to be alone." Uh, how do you reconcile these in the light of the issue of singleness? Yeah, it's a very good question, and that's because in the Old Testament, to be barren was in fact seen as a curse. The norm was that most people just got married. 
so it was unusual to not be married. So to be barren was a curse, to not have a family was seen as a curse. But how do you reconcile is that something has changed in the new covenant. There is a greater urgency now because the last days have started and Christ is returning soon. There is something that takes precedence even over having family, even over having kids. And it's a New Testament thing that has changed what was the norm in the Old Testament. And we get this from Jesus as well, not just in what we read in Matthew, but also when he said, remember the story where Jesus said to the disciples, see, the disciples were really angry when this woman uh, poured this expensive perfume over Jesus and the disciples got angry and said, why is she wasting all this? We could have sold that and given it to the poor. But do you remember what Jesus said? He said, the poor you will always have with you, but I'm not always with you. And so Jesus is showing there's something even more important than caring for the poor. There's something even more important than having your own family. There is the kingdom of God. There's something that has taken greater precedence in the new covenant. There's the urgency now. So that's how you reconcile it. In the Old Testament, it was a curse. But now we're in the New Testament time. It is different. Thank you. Uh, The next question. uh, How could someone deal with parents who view marriage as the ultimate goal? and puts uh, immense pressure on them to marry. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes from all sorts of cultures, isn't it? You know, I want grandkids before I have a daughter or son-in-law. Um, well, how you deal with parents, I think, is speaking about the things you've heard tonight. Um, and if your parents are Christians, then it makes even more sense for them to understand and even to believe what we've heard tonight. If they're not Christians, then you, you can try to sort of under... Uh, help them understand that the things you're looking for in marriage are, in a sense, things that can't really all be fulfilled in marriage anyway. Um, So be wise, help them to understand. But the reality is your your parents can put all sorts of pressure on you. If it's not going to happen, it's not going to (laughs) happen. They just be, you know, remain desperate and sad and let them be. Share share the gospel with them. That's all I have. Thanks, John. We are going to stand now and sing to our God.